Well, thanks for tuning in to the Midweek Devotional for Wednesday, August the 5th. I hope this finds you well. My name is Parker Johnson. I'm the pastor at First Presbyterian Church in Bruton, Alabama. You can find out more about our church at fpcbruton.org. Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. So, Father, I pray that in this strange season, uh, you would be sweeter to us more than ever. Lord, that we would love you and that we would cherish our time with you and that as we look back upon this time, that it would be a time of great and intense spiritual growth. Father, as there seems to be so many things up in the air, from the impact of opening schools to church schedules to just life and the economy, Lord, I pray that as many of these things are up in the air, that we would be still, that we would be still before you, that we would trust in you more, and that we would build our foundation more, more and more upon the rock that is Christ and less upon the shifting sands of those things which cannot um, give us significance, they cannot fulfill us. Uh, Lord, we pray that in our time together today as we look at Acts 16 that you would grow us in your grace by your Spirit. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm continuing to do these devotionals on... Uh, the topic of my own private devotionals. I'm going through the book of Acts uh, on my own, and this morning I was reading in Acts 16 about Paul and Silas in Philippi, and I wanted to focus on Paul and Silas's experience uh, in the Philippian jail. But first let me give a little context of where we are. This is Paul's second missionary journey. You'll remember that in his first missionary journey, Paul's primary companion was Barnabas. Well, over in the end of uh, chapter 15, when it's time to set out again on the second missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement about whether or not to take John Mark. Um, you remember John Mark had left the first missionary journey. We're not given any details really why. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark to Cyprus um, and on their missionary journey as they went, as they would go together retracing their steps of their first missionary journey to visit the churches, but, but Paul didn't think that wise. And so they split up. And by the way, this is a, a good illustration of that there's sometimes that we have very godly people that have disagreements. And there's nothing in the text to tell us that this sharp disagreement was sinful. It just was a disagreement about what should happen. And so they, uh, they both go their own ways, and Barnabas is going to take John Mark to Cyprus, and Paul is going to take a new companion. Uh, his name is Silas, and they are going to go the land route up to Galatia, uh, modern-day Turkey, and they're going to visit their previous churches. By the way, they're going to pick up Timothy along the way, who's going to become an important part of Paul's uh, missionary efforts and later will be the recipient of one of his, uh, or actually two of his letters. Along the way, the Holy Spirit is going to use a dream uh, to get them to a new place they hadn't been before, and that's Macedonia, which was a, a poorer area than the areas they had been ministering. Uh, just as a factoid, over in 1610, we get the first hint, at least the first hint that I can find, uh, that Luke is now on the journey with them. Remember, uh, Luke wrote the book of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, and also the book of Acts. And we see over in 1610, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. 
uh, that's just an interesting factoid that apparently at this point, uh, Luke is going to be physically present for this ministry. And so they get to Philippi, which is the leading city of Macedonia. It's a Roman colony, and that's a big deal. That's a really big deal. Those who lived in Philippi would have been given very special status and would have had more access to Roman citizenship and special treatment under the law. It apparently was a flourishing area, even in the midst of a, of a poor uh, area of, uh, of the world. So in 16 verses 11 through 15, we find the conversion of Lydia. Uh, she's a seller of purple, uh, purple fabrics. Uh, purple fabrics are really expensive because they have to get their dye from, uh, I guess, I think they're sea snails, if I remember correctly. So it's a very labor-intensive, very costly thing. And even folks who had purple uh, dyed clothes oftentimes would have just had a, not a whole uh, robe or some or a piece of, of uh, an entire garment, but rather perhaps a piece of cloth or a sash or something that was smaller uh, that would have been not quite as expensive, but well beyond <clears throat> excuse me, the reach of any normal person. She is in Philippi, we gather, doing business. And uh, when Paul and Silas and Luke and the company, we would assume they had others with them, uh, when they found those synagogue in Philippi, they went to the river to pray on the Sabbath day, and they sought out worshipers there. And here the Lord is, uh, is going to use this experience, this moment, to bring to salvation Lydia and members of her household. They find Lydia and other women uh, down there, and she becomes the first Christian in this area. She and her whole household, which would have included her servants, are baptized, and she becomes a center of the church in uh, Philippi. We find later that they would have returned to her house uh, after they are freed from uh, prison, Paul and Silas and his companions. Uh, she's going to entertain them at her house, uh, and she's going to have hospitality extended to them. Well, as we, we go on in 16 through 24, Paul and Silas and company, they continue to minister in Philippi. And in the midst of all this ministry, there's a slave girl who was demon-possessed, and her owners made a bunch of money off of her because she was demon-possessed, and so people would come to her uh, to pay money to get their fortunes told as she practiced divination. Uh, this is just a good reminder that demonic forces are real, and we should not mess around with fortune-telling. We should not mess around with those spiritualists, those spiritual healers you see on the side of the road. You know, it's interesting, those places always have the worst-looking place, worst places. So we should probably take that as, uh, as a sign as well, that you shouldn't mess with them. But the demonic world is real, and we should not mess around with that. Um, by the way, there's a real contrast here between the blindness of those in Philippi, especially the owners of the slave girl, who did not understand who Paul and Silas and the company were. But the slave girl, right, the, the lowest of the low in that society, she sees, she understands who Paul and Silas are. And more specifically, the demon who is in her know who Paul, Paul and Silas are. We read in verse 17, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Well, she's going to keep doing this to the point that Paul is greatly annoyed. Don't you love that in verse 18? And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Well, this deliverance of the slave girl is an amazing thing for the slave girl, right? It, she is no longer oppressed by this demon. 
and it would have been liberation for her. But she who was the lowest of the low, who had eyes you know, to see, at least to, to see who uh, Paul and Silas were, as the demon recognized uh, the, the servants of the Most High God, uh, she now is freed. But those who were blind, those who could not see who Paul and Silas were, they, they're furious. They're furious because now they can't make money off of this slave girl. And so they're going to drag Paul and Silas. Essentially, it's just Paul and Silas here. So while Luke and others perhaps were, were with Paul and Silas, they were companions. And Paul and Silas really were the primary speakers and the focus of the ministry. Um, these slave owners are going to drag Paul and Silas for the magistrates. And the magistrates are going to have Paul and Silas stripped and beaten. And then they're going to entrust Paul and Silas to the character that we're going to be focusing on here in a minute. We read in verse 23, And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison. See that inner prison? Not just the outer prison, not just the normal prison, but really seeking to keep them safe. The inner prison and fastened them, their feet in their stocks. And so this is where we pick up with the text I'd like to focus on. So if you have a copy of God's Word, uh, we're in Acts chapter 16, verses 25 through 34. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said to me, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Man, what a great story. What a great story. Let me get a sip of this go juice, my, my coffee. Hold on a second. Ah, I commend to you the wonderful, wonderful blessings of coffee. All right, so what do we draw out of here? Well, in verse 25, we see that Paul and Silas use their trial. They use their trial. Um, you know, trials are a terrible thing to waste. <laughs> uh, a lot of times God will throw us into the fire that we might learn. In the words of uh, someone who comes to our Thursday morning Bible studies, Homer, he says, uh, you know, I don't, I don't like the fire, but I don't want to have to go back into it. And so he wants to learn in that experience what the Lord would have him. Paul and Silas do not uh, waste their trial. Uh, we see in verse 25, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I just want to note two ways they use their trial. The first is they seek and worship God. They seek and worship God. And so as we talk through this, I just want you to be thinking in context of the trial that we're in as a society, um, even as a church, right? Not being able to do our normal stuff. Uh, perhaps you're facing trials economically. Uh, perhaps this is feeding anxiety and depression. There, there's no, no telling what kind of trials you are going through. 
But think about your own trials. We look at how Paul and Silas used their trial. And so the first thing we see is they seek and worship God. You know, trials usually have one of two impacts on our lives. They will either drive us away from God or towards God. Now, it's not the trial's fault, right? It's, that's, that's the condition of our heart. Most of the time in trials, we go one of two directions. We, we rarely stay where we were. We're either going to get closer to God or we're going to be driven, allow ourselves rather, to lessen our relationship, to lessen our focus on the Lord. So think about our current situation. What does not focusing on the Lord look like? Well, you know, there's so many different ways. I mean, I don't think it's necessarily directly opposing God or intentionally moving away from Him. I don't. If we're believers in Christ, I don't think we'd ever say that we're going to let that happen. <clears throat> it's much more subtle than that. So much of, uh, I think, what's going on unhelpfully is that of diversions and distractions that we allow into our lives to cloud our relationship with the Lord, to take our focus off of Jesus instead of focusing on Him more intently. It's like looking through a lens that is clouded. You can still see uh, the object uh, through those lens, but you'll see it less clearly. You'll see it in less detail. You know, think about the diversions and distractions that we have going on right now. Um, you know, you think about uh, the, the number of conspiracy theories that are going around. Now, I, I'm not going to say that there aren't some truths to those things. I, I don't know. In fact, I woke up this morning to a Facebook uh, direct message of someone from my last ministry in Montgomery, and, and he had sent me a video of this conspiracy theory that was just was totally factually inaccurate. I mean, it was just, it was heinous in its inaccuracies. I watched, stopped watching it halfway through. I didn't care to cloud my mind. But, you know, by, by, by buying into every single conspiracy theory out there, you know, it really is a coping mechanism because it gives us a sense of control that if we just understand better what's going on, then we can have a better grasp on it and then we will finally be the people in the know, and that gives us a place of privilege. But other coping mechanisms in our lives, like binge watching TV, you know, I imagine that many of us are watching much more TV right now than we ever had before, or even substances that we might be turning to to, to help cope, uh, or just staying busy, or just sitting around criticizing others. Right? I mean, we preached on that. I preached on that last Sunday about judging others. You know, you think about Paul and Silas and their situation. They didn't know what the next day would hold. And we don't either. Uh, they didn't even know what that night would hold. You know, they, they were completely under the control of others and not necessarily nice folks. They were basically under mob rule at this point. But what happened in their lives? They, they moved towards God. They were actively praying and singing hymns to God. You know, I think a lot of times we have a hard time, and it is hard, it is hard to sing praises to God when our lives are upside down. Uh, but you know, there are always things that we can praise God for that in the midst of this crazy season, God is on His throne. He is sovereign. There's nothing that is happening that is catching Him by surprise. There's always a surprise for us on the television. And I wonder how many surprises are before us with school starting. There, there's just no telling. But none of these things catch God by surprise. So, so we can praise Him for His sovereignty and His control and His omnipotence, His all-powerfulness and His omniscience, His all-knowingness and 
his omnipresence, his all-presentness, that he is everywhere. We can praise him for salvation, that no matter what happens, that even if, even if, even if we die, even if we lose someone to coronavirus, or, or even if we lose our jobs, God will still be there, and God will get us through it. There's so many things that we can praise God for. You know, it's the, the words of Job, the, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Well, here's the application. Have you seen yourself growing spiritually or are you weaker spiritually than you were before? You know, we're four months into this thing-ish, right? And that is a long enough time to have an impact on us spiritually. You know, if, if there's a season in our lives that's two or three weeks long, that's, that's hard. That's a hard season that we go through. But generally speaking, if we are less dedicated in our times of devotion, if we are less focused on prayer in those times, there will be an impact. I don't mean there won't be. But it's less damaging than when it's cumulative over four months, four and a half months. And how long will this last? Are you closer to the Lord than you were four months ago? Or have you allowed yourself to be distracted to think, oh, this will just end and soon, and when it does, then I'll get closer to the Lord. Well, now is the time to seek the Lord. Well, so we see Paul and Silas using this trial, number one, to seek and worship God. And so this is a great time for us to do the same, to seek and worship God, to use this time to seek the Lord intently. Um, but also, we see them, secondly, using this time to witness to others. Note that we read in verse 25, that the prisoners were listening to them. Now we have no clue how many prisoners there were. It obviously was not an itsy-bitsy tiny jail because there's an inner prison and an outer prison. And so it's, it's you know, there, there are at least a few others here. And, and look, Paul and Silas weren't idiots. They knew. They knew that people were listening to them. But think about the impact of these two men entering into this situation. There's no telling how long these prisoners have been there. And how hopeless they would have been. Were they being taken care of? Were they, did they have enough food? Were their clothes in tatters? You know, when you were in prison those days, you were basically reliant, uh, you had to rely on your friends and relatives to provide for you food, clothing, and the necessities of life. And so if you didn't have those, th- those people in your life, if you didn't have that support system, well, it was real bad for you. And so here are these two men who are singing praises to their God and praying and calling out to him in the midst of these potentially hopeless prisoners. Here they were under special guard. Why weren't they afraid for their lives? You know, are there others in your life who are hopeless, who are just freaking out because of this issue or others, right? How many other issues? This is just a small part of the struggles of life. Errant children economic woes, anxiety, depression, struggles with sin, hard marriages. We just never know the level of hurt in those around us. And, And are we bringing hope into their lives? Are we being salt and light? How can you use, how can we use this strange season to impact the lives of those around us? You know, I think at the very least, we should be guarded about the things that we say to others in this season? Because you never know what's going on in their lives, right? It's not wrong to to buy into some of the conspiracy theories, I guess. Uh, You know, there are always elements of truth in everything. 
uh, I don't I don't know how this stuff works, but but is that the thing that we're going to focus on when we talk to our friends and neighbors? Is that is that really the best use of our time, or should we use that time in a positive sense to sow hope into the lives of others? checking on them, calling them, praying with them, not just sitting around criticizing this, that, or the other. You know, Paul and Silas were pointing others through their activity to Jesus. Are we, in this trial, pointing others to Jesus? Or are we just increasing the fear of others? Think about that. Are are there those in your life that you need to point to Jesus? I, I fail at this all the time. Well, in verse 26, we see that the God they worship, the one God of all the universe, the God they worship intervenes. We see this in verse 26, which we read, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, uh, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Imagine the impact of singing to God. There, there they are, singing and praising God. Paul and Silas, they've been beaten. They're hurting. They're bruised. They're bleeding. You know, their clothes were torn off of them. And so they're probably not wearing much other than just their loincloth things. And then there's this great earthquake. And then, then all the doors are open. You know, I imagine these folks have been longing for those doors to be open. And then the, the fetters, the bonds that everyone was under, they were, they were loosened. They, they, they were opened. They were unfastened. Wow. You know, last week in Midweek Devotion, we talked about persecution in the book of Acts, and we saw that sometimes God intervenes to save those under persecution, and sometimes He doesn't. You know, He always saves them, either physically or upon their death. They are, uh, you know, certainly brought into the freedom of heaven. But here we do see that God, for His glory and for the building up of His church, is going to intervene and to free Paul and Silas. Well, so the, the jailer comes in and he sees what has happened and he's about to kill himself. Now, that might seem like a strange thing to us, but in those days, he would have answered with his life if the prisoners had escaped, especially those whom he had just been charged with to keep in great safety. You know, the ones he'd put in the inner prison and fasten their feet in the stocks. And so he's about to kill himself, lest he have to answer for their lives before the magistrate. And there's no telling what they would have done to him in addition to killing him. But then the most amazing thing happens. Verse 28, But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Here we see that Paul and Silas are going to use their freedom to witness. We've already seen how they, how they would use their trial to witness. But now we see that they use their blessing and their freedom to witness and to reach those who are lost. They could have escaped. They could have led the charge. They could have said, all right, guys, let's go. All these prisoners had just had their bonds uh, unfastened and the doors were all open. He could say, this is our chance. You know, we've got some cannon fodder here to protect us as we get out. Um, But they don't. And in some ways, it would have been easy for them to see that this was God's way of letting them get their freedom but they stay out of a love. And they, they stay out of a love for their jailer, the one who had potentially been involved with their abuse, 
We have no information here about the jailer and his past activities, but he's been working for the Romans apparently for a while, and working for the Romans, he had seen and perhaps done some things that were not all that helpful. And here, Paul and Silas, out of love for the jailer, because they knew what would have happened to this man if he had killed himself. He would have gone to hell and died. He would have died, gone to hell, and remained there forever. And they are willing to put their physical freedom at, at risk in order to tell this man about salvation. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Where's the application here? Well, we are to use our trials to reach others and, and our good times. When God brings relief into our lives, it's not just for our benefit. It is for the benefit of others, for the church, and for those who don't know the Lord yet. What blessings has God brought to your life that you need to use to reach others? Is it spiritual maturity? Perhaps it's physical resources. Perhaps it's just emotional stability. You know, even if you're housebound, even if you're housebound, you have a great opportunity to be a prayer warrior. I remember um, Mr. Otts, uh, about a year before he died, you know, he was ready to go be with the Lord a long time before God took him. And uh, he, he said it, that, he said, Parker, I don't know why God won't take me. And I told him, Mr. Otts, I, I don't know either, but perhaps it's because God still has something for you to do. And I shared with him a prayer request that the Lord would bring one person in particular to salvation. And do you know within three, four weeks or so, that man became a believer and his family was changed. Praise God. Even when we're housebound, we can use our trials and our freedoms and our blessings to reach others and to witness for Christ. Well, finally, uh, as we conclude with this passage, uh, let me read uh, verses 29 through the end of the passage again. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced with his entire household that he had believed in God. So what do we see in these last, past, last verses? Well, it is quite simply this. We should faithfully expect God to do big things. We should faithfully expect God to do big things. I think a lot of times we don't believe that evangelism and outreach actually accomplish anything. I think that is something that we really struggle with as Christians, as American Christians, maybe perhaps especially in the South, in the Bible Belt. God really does use our efforts for His glory to make an impact on the lost and the hurting around us. We should faithfully expect God to do big things. Look what happens. In verses 30 to 31, the jailer rushes in and uh, he immediately asks, Hey, what must I do to be saved? In verse 32, um, we read that, uh, that Paul and Silas, as they tell him of what the Lord says about how salvation comes, he, Paul and Silas gain an audience not just with the jailer, but, but to his, old, his whole household. And we see that uh, when this man becomes a believer, you know, especially in, in those days, you know, when the, the head of the household uh, was converted, the whole household became Christians. You know, even if they weren't inwardly 
converted, regenerated. They identified with the religion of the, uh, of the head of the household. So we should expect that others in this household did become Christians, were truly converted and regenerated. And we see that, um, we, that, that immediately this man was baptized. I love verse 33, uh, that as he responds in salvation, as he calls upon the name of the Lord, as he believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, he, uh, he is baptized. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and his whole family. There are two washings in this verse. One, we see that the very man who had perhaps caused some of the wounds is now going to wash the wounds of Paul and Silas. Isn't that, isn't that a great image of the transformation that comes to the people of God when God does great things? That someone who is a persecutor, just like Paul was, right? Just like Paul was, approving of the stoning of Stephen and going and traveling around to imprison folks, this is just like the jailer was. And now Paul is a great missionary. The jailer now is washing the wounds of the one whom perhaps he hurt or at the very least was guard over. But that is, and that was a great washing, perhaps uh, making sure infection didn't come, leading to the physical healing. But the greater washing is that of baptism. He was baptized at once, he and his whole family. Wow. Isn't that great that, you know, the, the greater washing here is that of baptism. <clears throat> now, baptism is a sacrament, uh, and it points us to, it is a sign and seal, a visible representation of what is going on uh, inside the heart. And the true, the true washing here is that of the blood of Jesus washing away his sins. And we are, it is shown forth in public proclamation, public procla- proclamation, uh, that this jailer uh, has now become a believer with the physical washing of water. He and his whole household, he and his whole household were baptized. That's one of the reasons, by the way, when uh, someone becomes a member of our church, their children, even if they have not professed Christ, are non-communing members of our church uh, and are uh, eligible for baptism. They should be baptized because they are covenant children. Uh, and we see a great um, example of that here. And so he is washed with the waters of baptism. Paul and Silas are washed physically. And then in verse 34, we read that they all have a party. Food is set before them, and they re- all rejoice uh, with his entire household that he had believed in God. Well, um, we see that Paul and Silas's residence has changed. You know, they started this, uh, what we were talking about today, in jail. And now they're in the jailer's household. Isn't that amazing to see how the Lord works? They're rejoicing all around. Well, the story will continue, and I encourage you to check it out. Um, We see Paul and Silas claiming their rights as Roman citizens. They couldn't just have been uh, beaten, uh, uncondemned. Uh, They knew that. And, And so it's an interesting study also in how persecution unfolds in the early church. But, uh, but let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we pray that we would respond and use our, our good times, our trials, and our blessings to seek to love on those around us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.